Hey, let's take our Bibles out and turn to the book of James and let's study together. I am aware that we have skipped over Hebrews, but given that we have just recently completed an, an extended series in the book of Hebrews, um, I have not prepared for you at least tonight um, an outline or overview of the book of Hebrews. We'll come back and revisit that again somewhere in the future. The, 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 the long-term goal of our doing what we've done on Wednesday night is to provide, to have on hand for years to come, a library of overviews for every book of the Bible. So we'll go back and we'll supplement some spots where we may have skipped over. There was another book back in our study that we skipped over as well because we were at the present time going through that book on Sunday mornings. And so we skipped over Hebrews tonight given that we just completed Hebrews in a Sunday morning setting. But we'll, we'll come back there. And I hope that you'll be mindful of the availability of these overview sermons on uh, our website, maybe as you're studying, uh, reading through your Bible and your Read the Bible Through in a Year program, that you'll go back and revisit those, and they'll serve as a resource to you as an introduction to these books of the Bible again and again and again as uh, time goes by. So tonight we're going to look at the book of James. James is uh, a favorite for a lot of people because of its simplicity. James is often referred to as the wisdom literature of the New Testament. Does that resonate with you? There, there are certain genre in the Bible, meaning certain styles of writing in the Bible. And the ability to identify the style of writing helps us to understand how it is that we approach the interpretation of that book. When we say wisdom literature, usually the books that we have in mind are Proverbs, Job, Song of Solomon in some ways is a part of wisdom literature. Uh, did I say Job? Ecclesiastes is a part of wisdom literature. There are some Psalms that are classified as wisdom genre. And then in the New Testament, James is really the only example that we have of wisdom genre in the New Testament, except for some sayings of Jesus in the gospel accounts. And not, of all, not all of James is wisdom in the same sense that the book of Proverbs in the Old Testament is. Wisdom literature is about the poetic communication of truth in pithy, memorable kind of ways. And one, of the, one of the errors that are often made in interpreting wisdom literature is to interpret the proverb or the wisdom saying as though it is hard and fast, as though it is concrete. One of the better examples of this is Proverbs 22.6, which says, Train up a child in the way in which he should go, and when he is old, he will not depart from it. Now, if you interpret that passage as a hard and fast claim in the Scripture the way you might in another context, you might be greatly discouraged to find that there are instances when moms and dads do all within their power to see their children brought up in the training and admonition of the Lord, only to experience that at some point along the way, they do indeed go the wayward way. In principle, it is true. If you train up a child in the way in which he should go, he will not depart from it. But that is not a hard and fast concept that does not at times bend or a rule that does not have exceptions in life. That's the way a proverb is intended to function. It communicates a principle, a general idea that bears itself out with regularity. There's examples in the ministry of Jesus of this in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. And then within just a few short breaths, Jesus says, let your right hand know what your left hand is doing. Well, which of these are true? 
Well, they both are. They're both wisdom statements, proverbial statements, communicating two sides of a single truth. And so understanding the way wisdom literature operates can be quite helpful. James uses wisdom literature along the way, and it can be important that you identify when it is that James is using wisdom literature. Just in the past couple of weeks, someone asked me after service, said, Pastor, I was reading the book of James, and, and the Bible says that we, James said, we cannot tame our tongue. So should I try? You know, should we really make any effort at that? Well, when you understand that what James is doing there is using the wisdom genre to communicate the difficulty of taming the tongue, it puts that in an entirely different light. And what might read wrongly, read as though we have no hope of taming our tongue, becomes something James never intends. He's simply pointing to the difficulty of taming our tongue, and yet at the same time calling us by the power of the Spirit to do what may seem practically impossible to us. I enjoy the book of James for its simplicity. When you're reading the book of James, you don't find a lot of theological or doctrinal content. It deals with practical matters. Where the rubber meets the road, there you will find the epistle of James, helping us to navigate the, the, the everyday, ordinary circumstances of life. In spite of the fact that the overwhelming majority of the book of James is practical, it is focused on practical wisdom, James is really central to a great deal of theological discussion when it comes to the New Testament. There are many who see James' comments on faith and works in James chapter 2 as, as in conflict or something of a contradiction to Paul's message of the free grace of the gospel, when in reality there's a beautiful harmony that exists between those two realities. Indeed, indeed God's grace is full and it is free and it is not bound up in our work but entirely settled on the work of Christ. At the same time, the presence of the gospel in us produces in our life the fruit worthy of repentance. And James addresses this in a way that is unique to the book of James. I've identified six key themes here, and we could have done more, but six key themes that we'll give some discussion to in our time together tonight that I think will minister to you and be of, of help for you. The first of these is in chapter 1. James exhorts the church to rejoice in their trials, to celebrate when difficulties come upon them. Th that, that is counterintuitive. It doesn't seem to make sense that we would rejoice when bad things happen, that we would rejoice when suffering comes, but that is precisely the thing that James calls the church to do. Look at verse 2. Consider it a great joy, my brothers, whenever you experience various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance, but endurance must do its complete work so that you may be mature and complete, lacking nothing. So James says rejoice in trials, which we'll come back to. That's a complicated thing, right? But one of the reasons that you can rejoice in trials is because it is producing endurance in you. This is like exercise for your spiritual life. Exercise is often unpleasant. It is often painful. It is seldom a joyous experience. But over the course of time, physical exercise produces physical endurance. In the same way, the exercise of your faith over the course of time produces spiritual endurance. And spiritual endurance, when committed to the discipline, in time produces maturity in the person's life. Spiritual maturity is the product 
of bearing with the difficulties and hardships of life over the course of time, consistent in them, practicing, exercising our faith, regardless of the circumstances, rejoicing always. Look at verse 5. Now, if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God, who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith without doubting, for the doubter is like the surging sea driven and tossed by the wind. That person shouldn't expect to receive anything from the Lord. An indecisive man is unstable in all his ways. Now, one of the things about wisdom literature is it seems as though it can move from one topic to the next in rapid order with very little connection. But in truth, there can be some, some real connections that exist, for instance, here. It is not that James is entirely shifting the gear and transitioning away from this idea of bearing with hardships or rejoicing in trials. It is that he is pointing out here, James is noting here, if you don't know what to do, if you lack wisdom, if the trial comes and you don't know which way to go, pray. Seek the Lord. Go to him and ask for wisdom, and God gives graciously. Go with faith. Go in confidence, go without doubting. Don't be that man who's like a surging sea driven and tossed by the wind, but go in expectation that God would provide direction. Look at verse 9. The brother of humble circumstances should boast in his exaltation. In other words, if you're a person of humble circumstances and something great happens and you are elevated in your status, you should rejoice in that and celebrate God's provision in that moment. But be careful... For the one who is rich should boast in his humiliation because he will pass away like a flower of the field. In other words, you may rejoice in the turning of the tables when your fortunes are restored or you and your humble status or state are elevated or exalted by the Lord. You may celebrate that, but be careful that your celebration is tempered because the things of this world are fleeting. They are quickly passing away. Verse 11. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and dries up the grass, its flower falls off, and its beautiful appearance is destroyed. In the same way, the rich man will wither away while pursuing his activities. You may pray for your daily needs. Your daily needs may be real. They may be tangible. They may be real needs, actual essentials to life. And we should praise the Lord for his provision and celebrate the way that he provides, but hold loosely what has been entrusted to us, for the things of this world are quickly being destroyed by moth and rust and carried away by the thief who steals and kills and devours. Verse 12, a man who endures trials is blessed because when he passes the test, he'll receive the crown of life that God has promised to those who love him. On the other side of the trials of life, there is great joy. Verse 13, no one undergoing a trial should say, I'm being tempted by God, for God is not tempted by evil, and he himself doesn't tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when he's drawn away and enticed by his own evil desires. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and when sin is fully grown, it gives birth to death. Let's stop here for just a moment, because James is really, this, this is a wisdom way of touching on an incredibly different subject that we don't often have the precision of terminology to talk about comfortably. When anyone comes under various trials, he oughtn't say, under those circumstances, I am being tempted by God. This is the breath after James speaks of our being tested by God. So James is making a distinction between our being tested and our being tempted. To be tested 
is the work of God in us. To be tempted is the sinful, depraved, immoral response of sinful mankind in response to the experience of testing. So what James is saying is that yes, God tests us. The circumstances of life are provided for us so that the nature of our faith might be tested. Whether it be genuine faith or something less than saving faith. We are being tested by God in every scenario, in every circumstance, whether it be the best of circumstances or the worst of circumstances, these provide for us an opportunity to exercise our faith that we might grow in spiritual endurance, that we might mature into fully grown, mature followers of Jesus, spiritual men and women. And the testing God provides is the laboratory in which this endurance and this maturity is grown by the Lord. Our weaknesses are our responsibilities. You don't get to blame God for the circumstances of life setting you back or dealing you a bad hand or whatever the case would be. We don't know how to talk about these things at this point. People, I always hear people using the language of God allowing something to happen in our life. We talk about God as though he has his hands-off approach in our experience. Now, I, my, my intent is not to offend you or hurt your feelings in any way. But God in no way has a hands-off approach when it comes to his people. For that matter, God doesn't have a hands-off approach when it comes to those who actively reject his counsel or defy his will or spurn the work of his spirit or quench the conviction of his Holy Spirit. He is actively involved in every circumstance of our life. Even the bad cards that we're dealt in life are the work of God. Now, they may be very real, bad, evil, hard experiences to bear with. But God is superintending the purposes, the intent of Satan, of his minions, of evil people in order to use those circumstances for our good. Joseph illustrates this beautifully in Genesis 50 and 20 when he says to his brothers who captured him, threw him in a hole, sold him into slavery, and left him for dead. He said, what you meant for evil, God meant for good that he might save his people even to this day. You see what Joseph is saying there? That God was actively involved in your act of evilness. God's not culpable for the evilness. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. But he had not forsaken Joseph in that moment, but would superintend even what was meant for evil by Joseph's brothers to use it for the good of Joseph, his people. There's a quote from Charles Spurgeon that I love that, that gives from a real-life circumstance um, language that we can learn from when it comes to understanding the role of suffering and hardship in our life. This is what he said. It would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me, that the bitter cup was never filled by his hand, that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement or, or, or of their weight and quantity. I'm afraid that all the grace that I've got of my comfortable and easy times and happy hours might almost lie on a penny. But the good I've received from my sorrows and pains and griefs is altogether incalculable. Affliction is the best bit of furniture in my house. It is the best book in a minister's library. Now, 
we haven't alleviated the difficulty of talking about this, these circumstances. And I don't mean that we lose decorum when we talk to others about the evil things that happen in their experience. There needs to be some grace in our tone and sympathy toward the experiences of those around us. But you needn't wonder that God has ever taken his hand off the wheel of your life, no matter how painful the circumstances of your life may feel. And if God has afforded you the opportunity of, of, in, of dealing with, of bearing with, of journeying through that painful season, surely he has an outcome that is just out of this world for you and for his kingdom through those circumstances painful though they may be. So James is saying to us again and again and again here, rejoice in our trials. Notice how the, the, the passage ends in verses 16 through 18. Don't be deceived, my dearly loved brothers. Every generous act and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights. With him there's no variation or shadow cast by his turning. In other words, he's steady and consistent and faithful. And whether it be the giving of good and perfect gifts that elevates the status of the lowly among us, or the good and perfect gift of suffering and hardship that brings the exalted to humiliation, he is consistent and faithful in his giving of good gifts, always with our well-being in view. One of the key themes, and it's not limited to just these 18 verses, but throughout the book of James is a call from God that we would live with joy in spite of facing great trials and difficulty. Second key theme in the book is found in the close of chapter 1, where James tells us that we need to be more than just hearers of the word, but doers of the word also. Look at verse 19. My dearly loved brothers, understand this. Everyone must be quick to hear, slow to speak, and slow to anger, for man's anger doesn't accomplish God's righteousness. Therefore, ridding yourselves of all moral filth and evil, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. In the flow of the epistle of James, the message goes something like this. Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. Some painful things will happen, but know that God's hand is at work. You may choose to get angry at that, but know that your anger, no matter how justified you may feel in your anger, it never produces a positive outcome. Man's anger never results in righteousness. Rather than leaning into your anger or fulfilling your bitter desires, lean into, lean on, trust in, trust on the power of God's word. He says in verse 21, humbly receive the implanted word which is able to save you. The phrase implanted word here is interesting and it has to do with a word that has already been received. Here's the thing. James is not saying to the church, you need more information. You need to get to a Bible study, and you need to learn what the Bible says about the issues that you're facing. That's important, by the way. As the, I'm the Bible study guy. I would think so, right? What he's saying is, you need to do what you have already been told to do. Just do it. Do what God's Word says you are to do. Just do it. It's the Nike thing, right? And, 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 and a constant source of frustration at times in ministry is that the, the, the plain teaching of God's word calls us to one thing 
when so often our desire is to go in a, in a different direction. Like how many times do you read the Word of God and you walk away from that time and you do something that is completely in conflict with what God has just instructed you to do in that passage? I'm telling you, the need of, of, of the church is not more information. And I'm not saying that that's not important. I'm not saying doctrine doesn't matter. I'm not saying Bible study doesn't matter. I'm not saying reading. Listen, all those things matter. You need to hear preaching. You need to hear lots and lots and lots of preaching. It's good for our soul. It nourishes us. But at the same time, you need to do what God has so clearly instructed us to do. He continues in verse 22. He says, be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. Because if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man looking at his own face in a mirror, for he looks at himself, goes away, and immediately forgets what kind of man he was. But the one who looks intently into the perfect law of freedom and perseveres in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but one who does good works, this person will be blessed in what he does. James is describing a situation here where you get up in the morning and you go over to the mirror and you see yourself looking a mess, and your hair's all over your head, what you got left is all over your head, and your breath's bad, and you got a little drool on your cheek, and you look all disheveled, and you got sheet marks on your face. That's kind of how I met first thing in the morning, you know. And, and then you just walk away as if you never saw or experienced or encountered that, and you go meet the world looking all ragged. That's what it's like to, to see your, your reflection in the Word of God. And to walk away from that experience, having never been moved or taken action upon what you have so clearly seen. It's a dangerous thing. It should be a scary thing for you when you're able to put an elbow on each side of the Bible, clearly read of your personal shortcomings without being touched powerfully by the conviction of God's Holy Spirit. It may be that you've created calluses in your heart in those particular areas, and the only way to really begin to alleviate that insensitivity to the work of the Spirit is to begin to labor to bring correction, repentance to those particular areas. And over the course of time, there's a renewed sensitivity to the work of God's Holy Spirit. But listen, it is a dangerous, dangerous thing to quench the work of God's Spirit again and again and again. And we have this incredible knack for justifying our own sins for accepting ourselves from what is so clearly taught in the passage at hand. Be careful that you don't accept yourself from making application of what God's Word clearly says in the passage that is before you. James says your issue is not that you don't have enough information. Your problem is you're not doing what God has clearly instructed you that you should do over the course of time. So, He's, he's talked a bit about our hearing the word. Yes, that's important. We need to hear the word. We need to do the word. But I really think that verses 26 and following, the close of chapter 1, are about evaluating ourselves periodically against the standard of the word. Verse 26 says, If anyone thinks he's religious without controlling his tongue, his religion is useless and he deceives himself. Pure and undefiled religion before our God and Father is this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. This is pure and undefiled religion. In other words, your faith in Jesus should be, it should be active producing certain fruits in your life. And I, I really don't think, as passionate as I am about widow and orphan ministry, and we are as a family quite passionate about these ministries, 
I don't know that Paul, that Peter, or James rather, I'll get his name right before it's over with, that James is really elevating these outlets for ministry, these expressions of ministry above others. It's just that these are measurable. He's, he's putting before, if you don't control your tongue, if you're constantly popping off, if you say things that you shouldn't say, if you speak inappropriately, if you've got a vulgar mouth, if you're given to cursing, if, if you're given to fits of rage and anger, if they're constant outbursts, if you're not providing for the needs of widows and orphans within you know, the context of your community, your church community, or your community in general, these are measurables for us to evaluate ourselves against. And if these are absent in our experience, there's a strong likelihood that something is amiss, that we've become hearers of the word only and not doers. Now, again, I cannot overstate the challenge that this presents us. I'm convinced that the reason so many are... This is really hard to say without this sounding like a bad thing. You know how sometimes you meet people who know everything about the Bible, and they can be the biggest jerks you've ever met. You know, you know why that is? Because over the course of time, they've used hearing the word, the processing of information, the accumulation of information, as a way of soothing their guilt of conscience for the absence of any application of the word which is a doubly dangerous thing. Because not only are they not practicing the word, but they are growing in their pride, desensitizing themselves to the work of God's Holy Spirit. And so it's just a compounding issue. And over the course of time, they have eyes, to see, eyes but they cannot see, ears, but they cannot hear, hearts, but they cannot discern. This is never what God intended us to be. But soft-hearted, tender, compassionate, practitioners of the faith once and for all delivered to the saints, keenly sensitive to the voice of God's Holy Spirit and the reading of his word, seeking each day to do what God has instructed us to do. You know, you know, you know why the response to sermons like Sunday morning is, is almost always overwhelmingly positive, in spite of the fact that a passage like Sunday morning's is a passage that all of us, virtually all of us without exception, are inclined to, to violate probably since last Sunday. Because there's something that, that's deeply satisfying about hearing from God of what he wants us to do and then laboring to put that into practice in our life. And God's Spirit meets us there. Is, isn't that joyous? I think about the early days of walking with Jesus when I, I, I genuinely did not know what God wanted me to do from one day to the next, opening the Bible, reading a passage, making a discovery about God's will for my life on that day, and then laboring all that day long to do what God had instructed me to do. And the sweetness of fellowship with God's Holy Spirit, trying to learn what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. James is calling us back to that. Be, being a deep follower of Jesus is not about the mastery of a systematic theology. It's about the simple reading of God's word and a consistent labor to put into practice what God has clearly commanded of us in his word. It is just that simple.
verses 1 through 13. We're not going to deal with that one. I want us to move further into chapter 2, into faith and works. I will say, since we've skipped over the favoritism section, that, that that passage really calls us away from prejudice, from treating anyone better than others because of their financial standing or their ethnicity or where they came from or just because they're a friend or a pal. It's a call away from all of those isms that are such a hot topic in our culture today. It's also some insight into the circumstances the church found itself under in James' day. There's a lot of discussion here about the wealthy and their treatment of those in poverty, and even those in poverty and their regard for those who enjoyed a wealthy position. Um, you know, it, it really is equal footing in the church, and, and status and wealth and those kinds of things Although they can be a real benefit, they, they really don't mean a lot in the kingdom because God owns the cattle on a thousand hills and, and he's called us to himself and he's made us his own and in that and that alone we find our value. And James consistently calls the church to remember that principle and to guard against uh, favoritism or prejudice in any kind of way. It's in verses 14 through 26 that James take 14. James says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can his faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothes and lacks daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, and eat well, but you don't give them what the body needs, what good is it? In the same way, faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead by itself. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without works, and I will show you your faith from my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe, and they shudder. Foolish man, are, are you willing to learn that faith without works is useless? Wasn't Abraham our father justified by works when he offered Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was active together with his works, and by works faith was perfected. So the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him for righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone, and in the same way wasn't Rahab the prostitute also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by a different route. For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Now if you read this without bearing in mind that James, hmm, that sounds like something different than the message of the Apostle Paul, who says again and again and again that we are saved by grace, not of works, lest any man should boast. But again, James is speaking in principle, in wisdom, in Proverbs. He communicates as though this is, it sounds like a hard and fast principle, but you have this general concept giving expression to something that, again, is not in conflict with Paul's message, but in deep harmony with what Paul is describing here. James characterizes dead faith in, in four ways. It's an, an, an empty profession. You say that you believe God. Well, the demons believe, and they, and they shudder. There's no evidence of, of your faith. Your profession is just that. It doesn't appear to be a confession consistent with the convictions of your heart, or it would be bearing itself out. See, the, the thing is, James is dealing with, with Jewish people. James is writing to, 
to the 12 tribes of Israel dispersed abroad. He's writing to people with a religious background. They know the vocabulary. They've mastered the terminology. They have grown up in a culture, much like many of us have come up in, where whether you know Jesus or not, you know the language of knowing Jesus and are able to give rapid expression to that kind of terminology when called upon. He's, he's saying dead faith is, is the product of an empty profession. It's void of any evidence. You don't see the work of grace in their life, the fruit of repentance. It's useless. It doesn't benefit them in any way, and it cannot save. This is the way James characterizes faith that is without work. But a vibrant, living faith, saving faith, James describes, as a heartfelt confession, a relationship with Christ that results in a change of the way we talk, in a change of the way we walk, in a change in the way we regard the Lord, and a change in the way we regard those around us. It creates in us active compassion. We don't just look upon those who are in a miserable state and say, well, bless their heart. It's, it's a faith that is so deep and abiding that it actually moves us to intervene and begin to take measures to address the difficulties and hardships that others are facing. And saving faith, as James describes it here, always saves. The essence of what James describes in these verses is really very, very simple. Here it is. What James is saying to us, and what he was saying to a first century Jewish audience who would have struggled in this department, is that biblical behavior is always the product of biblical faith. That's what James is saying. When you have truly believed on, and this is not about having a little bit of faith or having a lot of faith. You know, it's the famous saying within the church, it's almost a proverb itself now. It's not, it's not the size of your faith that saves you, it's the object of your faith that saves you. Jesus saves us from our sin. But real faith that has been fixed firmly in Jesus moves us in such a way that it forever changes the course of our life. Behaving biblically is the consequence of believing biblically, deeply trusting on the power of the gospel to transform the human heart. There's a fourth theme here in chapter 3. It deals with taming the tongue. Verse 1 says, not many should become teachers, my brothers, knowing that we will receive a stricter judgment. For we all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a mature man who is able to control his whole body. So be careful. You don't want that everyone be a teacher because there's a stricter degree of judgment that comes with that responsibility. He says in verse 3, when we put bits into the mouths of horses to make them obey us, we also guide the whole animal. And consider ships, though very large and driven by fierce winds, they're guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So too, though the tongue is a small part of the body, it boasts great things. Consider how large a forest a small fire ignites, and the tongue is a fire of the tongue. A world of unrighteousness is placed among the parts of our body. It pollutes the whole body, sets the course of life on fire, and is set on fire by hell. Every sea creature, reptile, bird, or animal is tamed and has been tamed by man, but no man can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. We praise our Lord and Father with it, and we curse men who are made in God's likeness with it. Praising and cursing come from the same mouth. My brothers, these things should not be this way. Does a, sp a spring pour out sweet and bitter water from the same opening? Can a fig tree produce olives, my brothers, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a saltwater spring yield fresh water. 
the gist of James' teaching here is not hard to follow, right? Watch your mouth. Be careful of the things that you say. He's In a wisdom way, in a Proverbs kind of way, he gives expression to the challenge this creates for us. We tend to pop off. We say things in a rash way. We say things often before we think about them. And I would just warn you, because like, I found myself critiquing the culture all the time, but that's kind of the job of the pastor, I guess, so I'll, we'll just continue. In the South, we've made a virtue out of this thing. I cannot tell you the number of times I've been at a funeral service and, and some loving pastor say, old sister so-and-so, you never had to wonder what she thought. And everyone just sort of chuckles and they go, you know, that, that is not a positive thing, right? Like I get, you know, you sort of poke a little fun at that and that kind of setting and you bring a little comic relief to a painful moment. But it is not a virtuous thing that you would just speak before you think or process. In fact, if the book of Proverbs makes anything clear, the virtue is in holding our tongue, not a loose tongue. If there is some mystery about what's turning behind your eyes, that is regarded as a virtuous thing all over the Bible, but especially in the wisdom literature. And be careful at how it is that you use your tongue. Uh, it can create a great deal of trouble in a very, very brief period of time. When you get over to, uh, to, to chapter 4, verses 1 through 12, uh, James deals with pride and humility. This will probably be the last one we have time to deal with here. There's a lot said in these verses. We're going to read a few, and then I'm going to point you to the, the guiding principle in these 12 verses. The, the, the topic is pride and humility. And, and this, is, this is the kind of subject that appears all over the Bible. It's sometimes difficult to talk about because it's hard to quantify pride. You know, the same action in two different people, for one it can be prideful, and for the other it can be neutral or humble. It's, it has a lot to do with the heart, and the heart is very difficult for us to evaluate. But your heart is a lot easier for you to evaluate than the heart of someone else. And so the call of passages like this is to keep ourselves in check, that we're constantly assessing our heart, that we're in a position of humility and not one of pride. Look at verse 1. What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from the cravings that are at war within you? You desire and don't have, you murder and covet and can't obtain, you fight in war, you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your evil desires. This is a supplement because your motives are all wrong. In verse 4, James calls them adulteresses and says, don't you know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? So whoever wants to be the world's friend becomes God's enemy. Or do you think it's without reason the scripture says that the spirit who lives in us yearns jealously, but he gives greater grace, therefore he says, and circle this, and memorize this. This is the guiding principle in these 12 verses, and the brief verse that you can get all kinds of mileage from in life. Here it is. It's a quote from Proverbs 3.34. God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. The picture here, and, and, and linguistically what's being expressed here, is that God is actively fighting against proud people, but that God is actively elevating those who humble themselves. 
God fights against the proud, but he lifts the face of those who are humble. Now, if, that, if that's not a check in the spirit to evaluate yourself that you don't drift into pridefulness and away from humility, I, I don't know what can be. If you are a proud, arrogant, haughty person, God is actively fighting against you in your life. If you are meek and lowly of heart, if you are of humble spirit, God is actively involved in your elevation and your exaltation in life. It's really a powerful, powerful thing. We're, I like to say, when God gets ready to exalt you or me, he won't need our help to do it. If you will patiently and humbly wait on the Lord to reverse your fortunes, even under bad circumstances, he's faithful to do just that, resisting the proud and giving grace to the humble. Verses 7 and really verses 7 through 11 give us a series of commandments and a couple of promises that help us to shore this up in our heart. Submit to God, but resist the devil. And here's the promise. He will flee from you. You submit to God and you resist the devil and he will flee from you. Verse 8, draw near to God. And here's the promise. He'll draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, sinners, and purify your hearts, double-minded people. Be miserable and mourn and weep. Your laughter much changed to mourning and your joy to sorrow. Humble yourselves before the Lord. And here's the promise. He will exalt you. Practically what James gets to in verses 11 and 12 is this admonition that we don't criticize others. He's dealing with some barking that's going on within the church. And he's saying what you ultimately need to do is to come away from your wars and your fights. They're the, they're the product of inner unfulfilled desires. And those are the product of pride, convincing yourself, deluding yourself that you deserve more than you have. You need to be reminded that God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. And, and be careful in the judgment of someone else's servant. Our time is really up, but there's one last theme that's at least worth some mention in the close of our time together in chapter 5 in verses 12 through 20. James deals with what I call here truthful speech. Don't swear either by heaven or by earth or with any oath. Your yes must be yes and your no must be no so that you won't fall under judgment. James heard that somewhere, didn't he? He heard it from Jesus. And what he's saying here is that you are to be a person of such integrity that your word is your bond, that if you make a commitment, you can be counted on to fulfill that obligation or that commitment. In verse 13, he says, Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they should pray over him after anointing him with olive oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will restore him to health. If he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The urgent request of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. I think this is the product of what the psalmist teaches us, that if we regard iniquity in our heart, God will not hear us. Counter to that might be just what James says here, that if we flee from even the appearance of evil, that God's ear is inclined toward the righteous. 
here James says, the urgent request of a righteous person is powerful in its effect. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, yet he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. He deals with, in verses 19 and 20, those who are straying from the truth, but the topic is still very much the same, the power of prayer for those committed to righteousness and leveraging the power of prayer to see those who have strayed from the faith be restored even from their sin. I hope, I, I hope that you find James as encouraging, as insightful, and as helpful as I do. It's one of those books that you come away from with some to-dos, right? We, we, we know tonight, we've been reminded tonight that there's no place for favoritism, that we ought to hold our tongue, be slow to speak and quick to listen, that we ought to be more than just hearers of the word, but, but doers also, that our, our faith, that saving faith in us really ought to be producing the fruit of regeneration and repentance in our life. And I, and I hope there's been cause to remember how desperately we need Christ for grace and for mercy, the indwelling of his Holy Spirit by the gospel to empower these acts of obedience uh, today, tomorrow, and every day to come. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth, for these moments to spend together in the study of your word. Hide these truths away in our heart that we might not sin against you. Help us to walk worthy of our calling. Help us to rejoice in trials and, Lord, to exercise our faith and to grow in spiritual endurance and to become mature spiritual men and, and women who walk faithfully with you. God, forgive us where we come short. So often we do. Fill us with your spirit and shower us with grace. In Christ's name, amen.